0: Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits.
1: Hey, it's Ken Gagney, welcoming you to episode number 8 of Indie Cider. Number 8 already, my goodness. Pretty soon we'll be at the double digits. Anyway, on to the show. I most recently played Rex Rocket, which was a Metroidvania set on a spaceship and very much inspired by the original Metroid game in that you're collecting weapons and power-ups and going through a spaceship. This week's game has some similarities to that game, but is just drawing inspiration from a whole lot other places and also trying to be something original on its own. This game is called Super Win the Game, and it is the sequel to a 2012 freeware game called You Have to Win the Game. And no, the sequel is not called You Have to Win the Game Again. This game releases the same day as this episode, October 1st, 2014, for Steam, that being PC, Mac, and Linux, and an advanced copy of the Mac version was provided to me by developer J. Kyle Pittman of Minor Key Games, who you'll be hearing from later in this episode. Superwind the game draws its inspiration very liberally from the likes of The Legend of Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, Kid Icarus, Super Mario Bros., Metroid, StarTropics, and you can literally see those inspirations as you're going through the game. It is a 2D side-scroller with rooms and levels, large and small, vertical and horizontal scrolling as you go up and down and around the levels. There are spikes that will kill you with one hit, but they send you immediately back to the nearest bell that you rang, which serves as a checkpoint. The bells are located rather liberally around the stage, so you never have to worry about going too far back. Because there's a lot more than just spikes to kill you. There's also snakes, scorpions, projectiles and bullets, electric rays, water if you don't know how to swim acid, and much, much more. In that sense, the game reminds me a little bit of Super Pitfall for the 8-bit Nintendo, where everything is trying to kill you. When you exit the dungeon, you find yourself in an overworld map that allows you to explore without having random encounters like you would in Dragon Warrior. It's more like Star Tropics in that respect, where you can go north, south, east, or west and find caves, bridges, towns, dungeons, temples, and more to explore and die in. This also creates a very large world and there's no map that it gives you. So there are times when I was playing at the beginning and somebody in town told me to go into the dungeon and find this item and bring it back to him. I would find the item, but then there'd be a door leading to another part of the world and I wouldn't necessarily backtrack to town to return to the old man. I would just go through that door and find out what lay beyond. And sometimes I got a little lost wondering, wait, where exactly did I come from and how do I get back there? I wasn't mapping my route, so I wasn't really sure if I was going the right way or how to get back there. Because there are times when you can see areas that you can't get to yet, and you'll need to come back there once you get the appropriate items, such as double jump boots, so you can make it to a higher platform and get some other hidden item, or make it to a new area or a new door or passageway. You definitely want to start this game with some clarity in mind about where you're going, and more important, where you've been and how to get back there. I did not do that, my mistake. This game surprised me in a variety of other ways regarding what features it does and does not include. For example, it does not include any combat or weapons. There are no projectiles that you can hurl at those snakes or scorpions to defend yourself. You simply have to move up, down, left, right, jump, and duck. And that is the extent of your input. The game does support controllers such as the Xbox 360 controller, which I've been using to play this game, which is a relief because I'm not a huge fan of using the keyboard. And I know I just offended every single Quake, Doom, and Wolf 3D player that has ever existed but I'm sorry, I'm more of a console gamer and I like my joysticks. The game does include a variety of interesting visual and audio features though, the most notable of which is CRT emulation. You turn this on and the colors get a little muted, scan lines show up, and the corners of the screen become rounded. So this game is meant to look like it was developed in the 1990s, And it can literally look like it still is 1990 as you're playing it. I think this feature is a technological marvel and a complete pain in the butt. I don't use it because I like my games to look as high def as possible. However, it is in there for those who want it, and I think that's a great option. So for a game with such obvious inspirations and such relatively simple gameplay mechanics, I'm a little bit surprised by how deep it seems to be. Sure, the... 8-bit era has been revived multiple times in games like Rex Rocket and Shovel Knight and countless others, but there always seems to be new opportunities and venues and ways in which to interpret our inspirations, the games that we grew up with. J. Kyle Pittman, the developer of this game, is like me in his 30s and is nostalgic of his youth and is making his own interpretation of what those games were like while adding his own original spin to it. I think that's a cool thing. I like it. So let's bring him on right now to talk to him a bit about what makes Super Win the Game just so darn super. Today I'm speaking with Mr. Kyle Pittman, co-founder and developer at Minor Key Games, responsible for Super Win the Game. Hello, Kyle. Hey, how's it going? Very good. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. You must be so busy with the game, as we're speaking, coming out less than a week.
0: Yeah, yeah it's pretty exciting. It's, uh, I guess, four days away now, and... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. The, I mean, the game's it's been done for a couple of weeks. I'm just sort of doing last-minute uh, polish and bug fixes and all that
1: fun stuff. As the deadline approaches, you're always wondering, what did I miss? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, I do the same thing with magazines, where I once it goes to print, I try not to look at it, because I'm going to find something that I forgot.
0: Yeah, I've definitely had the experience of, like, I I know that I should be playing the game and testing it and looking for bugs, but I sort of just don't want to touch it.
1: (laughs) So this game is the follow-up to You Have to Win the Game, which was a free platformer. So since it was free, what sort of metrics did you have to determine whether a sequel was warranted?
0: Yeah, I developed You Have to Win the Game sort of as a side project a couple of years ago while I was working in uh, the AAA industry. And uh, then last summer, my brother and I decided that we wanted to do indie game development so we we formed minor key games and i was actually working on a different project for a few months but i guess going back to january i was at steam dev days and i was sort of thinking about like was this project I was working on really the one I wanted to do? And did I have any better ideas? And this idea just struck me that, Hey, why don't I do a sequel to that thing that I did a couple of years ago that everyone seemed to love? I had so many people tell me that like, Oh, you could have charged, you know, $5, $10, whatever, uh, for you have to win the game. I was like, if I made a sequel and I made it my full time job and, you know, put everything I have into it, I could make something really, really cool that I feel like would be worth paying money for, and uh, could it could stand as a a sequel to a free game, which is, is something that's a little bit scary to do, but uh, I
1: feel pretty good about it. Are you anticipating any pushback from people who said, oh, the first game was free, the sequel should be two?
0: I mean, a little bit, yeah, but everyone who I've talked to about it understands that, like, yeah, this is my full-time job now. If, if I can't make money off of what I'm doing, then I can't continue to make games. So I, I think there is that sort of understanding that the first one was free. Uh, because it was a side project, it was something that I was able to do in my free time. So I, I think people generally understand that.
1: You mentioned working in the AAA industry. If I understand correctly, you were working on Borderlands with Gearbox. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I worked at uh, I worked at Gearbox for about six or seven years. I worked on uh, both of the Borderlands games, um, and also like Duke Nukem Forever and Aliens and a few others that I don't really talk about as much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was a really good experience. A really good company, and I, I had a lot of fun working in AAA. I guess the uh, Sort of the reasons like why I wanted to go from AAA to indie development was mostly that I was working as a programmer there and I want to have like more of a design role, have more autonomy in developing the sorts of ideas for games that I wanted to do. And, uh, I was doing a little bit of that in uh, my side projects with games like You Have to Win the Game, but I really sort of wanted to transition into making that my full-time job.
1: So for Super Win the game, how much of the original game's engine or assets were you able to reuse?
0: I've been developing my own uh, game engine, just sort of as a hobby for fun, for probably seven or eight years now. So I built on top of a lot of the stuff that I had already had for You Have to Win the game, as far as um, you know the the sort of fundamental building blocks of the engine you know collision and rendering and all that stuff i I didn't change too much of that i did build like an entirely new level editor because the one i had was sort of (laughs) very specifically built for that first game and couldn't do a lot of the new things i wanted to do but uh yeah i mean i've tried to reuse as much as i can just because the the more i can reuse the sooner i can get the game done i guess
1: I've been playing the game a bit, exploring all the different levels that are in there, and I understand that despite the sort of going forward and discovering new items and going back and opening new areas, you nonetheless prefer that this game not be called a Metroidvania. What sort of baggage do you associate with that genre?
0: I have called it a Metroidvania at times, but I, I didn't want to like bill it as a Metroidvania when promoting it or marketing it, just because I, I think that Labels like that tend to get a little fuzzy because everyone has their own expectations of what that means. You know, if I say, hey, this is a Metroidvania, someone might assume that it has combat or that there are bosses or that the game is a certain length or whatever else they might, you know, sort of associate with that term. And when I say Metroidvania, I'm mostly thinking about the fact that... uh you know, you'll see places at the start of the game that you can't get to yet, and you'll be able to come back to those places later, uh, once you've found new power-ups, once you have new abilities, and you'll be able to advance further from there. Um, but, you know, obviously that's, that's my definition of what a Metroidvania is, and that wouldn't necessarily always correspond to other players' expectations. So that's why I've been avoiding terms like that, and trying to focus on, like, what, what the actual game features are, and if people come to the conclusion that it's a Metroidvania of their own accord, that's awesome.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't considered that weapons and bosses might be an inherent part of the definition of Metroidvania, but you're on to something, because one of the terms that I've found to be very problematic in this YouTube series is roguelike. A lot of people are using roguelike, and uh, I tell you, some of the games I've played on this channel, they're fantastic games, and I love playing them, but they're not roguelikes.
0: Roguelike has sort of become conflated with permadeath, but even then you have games that have permadeath, but also have some sort of metagame progression, so you, it's not like you really lose all of your progress when you die, so <laughs> I, I, I like the uh, procedural death labyrinth the term that's sort of arisen as an alternative to roguelike. <laughs>
1: I mean, I've I've even heard the term roguelike-like, and I'm okay with that, you know, so your game is uh, (laughs) Metroidvania-like. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Now, on that same topic, there are times when I feel like I have a lot of options in your game about where I can go next and what levels to tackle, and I almost don't have much direction on what I'm supposed to do next. Does the game offer a lot of freedom in what order I can go in, or... Am I actually following a prescribed path? Uh,
0: yeah, there there are a few different ways that you can go from the start of the game. Um, sort of the progression is largely tied to which power ups you find and what abilities those give you. But from the start of the game, there are a few. In different places you can go, different power ups that you can collect at first. And that was, that was by design. I wanted to have that sort of open ended freedom of exploration. I've been playing a lot of, you know, Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2 recently, and I like the, the freedom that those games give players. I wanted to try to make something that took that freedom of exploration, but put in a game that was not about combat and was just about platforming and, you know, treasure hunting and those sorts of things.
1: So, so far, I have found the red crystal, the blue crystal, and the snorkel in that order. Is that a typical gameplay experience?
0: Uh, Yeah, definitely. I would say getting those two crystals first is -hmm. what most players do. Um, You can actually get the double jump boots as the very first thing if you know what you're doing, but I don't expect most players to do that. (laughs) But I think that once players start to figure that stuff out, that's going to be... Uh, really interesting to see what speedrunners do, because th- there are some power-ups in the game that are completely optional and you can avoid getting them entirely, it just makes the game more difficult.
1: <laughs> if I had known how open the game was when I started playing, I would have pulled out my sketchbook and started mapping my route. Is there any sort of mapping function in the game?
0: No, that was something that I sort of went back and forth on for a while. I considered putting in a mini-map like on the inventory screen or something but it would have been difficult to automate that process um, just because of the way i build my levels sometimes there are rooms that are adjacent to each other but i wouldn't necessarily want them to show up at the same place on a mini-map so i would have had to author that content a little bit differently and it just it never felt like it was worth the trouble that it would cause me and i think too a lot of the old nes games that i'm drawing inspiration from didn't always have many maps. You know, you play you play The Legend of Zelda and it, it has like some sort of little map up in the corner, but it doesn't really show you where you're going. It doesn't give you a whole lot of idea of <laughs> where you are in the world. So uh, I, I think, uh, and maybe this is just me making excuses for not putting a feature in, but <laughs> it it feels like it uh, stays truer to those early NES routes to not have that sort of mapping functionality and to put that responsibility on the player to sort of create their own maps if they want them.
1: No, no, I totally get that. Now, another thing that's missing from this game, and you mentioned this when talking about the definition of Metroidvania, was weapons. There doesn't seem to be a point where I'm going to collect a power-up that allows me to finally attack those scorpions and snakes, even though this game is sometimes called a platformer, which brings to my mind the original Super Mario Bros., which had fireballs, or Mario 2, which had vegetables. So am I I never going to find any sort of projectile or offensive weapon in this game?
0: That's right, and that was a deliberate design choice. I wanted to make a game that was strictly about um, mobility and Traversing the world and completely remove any element of combat. So, yeah, you'll never find a melee weapon. You'll never find fireballs. You'll never be able to jump on enemies to kill them. Uh, Literally, the only thing you can do is try to avoid enemies uh, and collect treasure and collect new abilities. Um, And that was, you know, that was sort of a design decision that came from having worked on a lot of first-person shooters and a lot of games that people would say are you know (laughs) overly violent or whatever i wanted to do something that was kind of the opposite of that and that's not necessarily something that i'm going to stick to in the future um i definitely i i probably will make another first-person shooter at some point down the road but uh you know i thought for the the first game that i'm developing for minor key games i wanted to uh to do something that was a little bit different than anything i've done in the past
1: I think the decision to eliminate any offensive tactics is interesting and probably a positive one because this game reminds me of one of my favorite computer games of all time, which is VVVVVV.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, V was a huge inspiration on the original You Have to Win the Game. And yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite games as well.
1: Now, another restriction you've placed on this game is using the original color palette for the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System, so it looks like a game that could have actually existed in 1990, but in what ways did you decide not to limit yourself to that era and take advantage of the technology available nowadays to make this game, either in a way that benefited you as a developer or in ways that the player will see?
0: Cool, yeah. um... Yeah, I mean, wherever possible, I tried to stick to the limitations of the original NES hardware, so I am using the original color palette. I am, uh, you know, the sprites are limited to three colors plus transparency. The audio is like a a four-channel synthesizer, just like the NES had. I guess where I sort of diverge from that is wherever it was not easy to work within those constraints, or uh, I guess not easy to place those constraints on myself. So for instance, the original NES had a hard limit of 16 colors on screen at once. And there's not really a good way to force that restriction when you're talking about working with Direct3D and OpenGL on modern hardware. So I just kind of hand-waved that one away. And <laughs> I assume most players won't notice that, you know, sometimes there are more than 16 killers on screen. But I guess the other big thing is just, like, when you're working on a PC, you have essentially unlimited memory, which is such a contrast from actually working on the NES where it's a fixed memory platform and you have a very very limited amount of things that you can store and that's why you look at so many old NES games and enemies would respawn as soon as they were off the screen you know the game would lose track of maybe what power-ups you had collected or which ones you hadn't Uh, and a lot of that was just because it didn't have the memory to keep track of those things (laughs) once they were sort of outside the scope of what you were actually viewing so that's that's something that, you know, working on a PC with unlimited memory and unlimited hard drive space, I can sort of keep track of all that stuff.
1: But you can still use modern technology to catch that r- retro vibe, especially in the way you've implemented the CRT.
0: Yeah, and that's something where the, the CRT effect, I had uh, I had written that actually for a game jam several years ago, and then I reused it for the first You Have to Win the Game. And then for this one, I I added a few new features, but I also went the extra step of making it totally customizable. So if you go into the options menu, there's a whole bunch of sliders that let you change things like the intensity of the scan lines, uh, how much curvature there is on the screen how much motion blur uh, characters leave behind as they move and all that sort of stuff. That's something where sometimes people would play the game and they would give me feedback like it looks cool, but it's not exactly how I remember. Maybe it's, you know, too strong of an effect, not strong enough. And, By putting that in players' hands to customize the experience that they want, I I think that's that's, uh, something that I was really hoping to be able to do, and I'm really happy with how it turned out.
1: Have you gotten any feedback from younger gamers who never experienced a CRT, and they're wondering, what is this? Why would anybody play like this? I I haven't had that reaction
0: of not actually knowing what a CRT is at all, but it has been funny to see reactions from different age groups at some of the events that I've been going to, You know, people my age and older tend to instantly get, and then uh, teenagers and maybe, you know, younger college-age students actually tend to be the most cynical about it. But then once you get a little bit younger than that, down to, like, you know, elementary school-age kids, they actually seem to really like it. I think – I'm not sure – Whether it's just that it's something new and different, because at that age, obviously, they're not going to have that sort of retro nostalgia themselves. But uh, yeah, it's been funny to see those different reactions at different ages.
1: I think there are some things that younger gamers just don't appreciate about the reality of old school graphics. For example, they can play a modern implementation of Asteroids, the classic arcade game, or they can emulate it. But it's very different to actually go to an arcade and see those vector graphics. It doesn't look like something that you've emulated. Oh yeah,
0: definitely. And I mean, even the same thing, uh, you know, playing, I have a bunch of like retro games collections and arcade games collections, uh, for the 360. And I play those on my, you know, HD TV screen. it's like, okay, it's the same gameplay, but it's not the same experience of going to an arcade and seeing the sort of fuzzy graphics on an old, slightly curved arcade screen. And (laughs) yeah, it's, it's the, 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 uh, the medium, I think, really does make a big difference to the uh, perception of what the game is.
1: I'm forgetting the name of it, but isn't there this very expensive $400 device that you can use to connect a retro uh, home console to a modern HDTV and it will even implement scan lines for you?
0: Probably so. I, th- I think the uh, Retron 5 may do that. I, I don't have one myself, but I've been hearing a lot of people talk about it. <laughs>
1: Ah, found it. It's the XRGB Mini Framemeister Compact Upscaler Unit from Solaris, Japan. There will be a link in the show notes. Speaking of graphics, Flappy Bird got a lot of flack for borrowing a little too liberally from Super Mario's aesthetics. And unfortunately, I saw some comments on Polygon almost accusing you of doing the same thing. And there are certainly times when I'm playing your game and I say, oh, that reminds me a lot of Zelda 2, or those clouds remind me of Super Mario Bros." Really. So how do you tread that line between being inspired by a classic game and borrowing too liberally?
0: Yeah, I've I've had a few people ask me that in person. Like uh, I've had people ask me if I uh, actually lifted art directly from Zelda 2 or Metroid. And no, none of the art is actually stolen. Some of it was very very, you know, closely and deliberately copied. Um, you know, I would have a screenshot of Zelda 2 or Metroid open and then be drawing my own tiles, trying to get something similar to what they did. But uh yeah, it is uh is a fine line be- between making those sorts of deliberate callbacks to older games and just straight up copying them. And I, I think uh, where I feel like i get away with it is that I do have a good amount of unique content in this game and, the gameplay itself is so different from Zelda 2 or Metroid. Like, yeah, it's a side-scrolling platformer, but <laughs> most games from that era were. So I, I don't feel too bad about, you know, having some of those very obvious callbacks. I, I think the, uh, probably the, the, the most egregious one is uh, there's there's one dungeon in the game where the the first room, the entire facade of the dungeon, is literally copied tile for tile from uh, the first dungeon of Zelda 2. <laughs> I was like, okay, I did that. <laughs> I, I'm I'm done with putting those references in there. <laughs> is that where you ride the elevator down? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I I was, I was surprised by how I could be playing the game and feel like, oh, this is like Zelda 2, and then I'm exploring a little bit more and it feels more like Metroid and then I go to the overworld and it feels like Star Tropics. It's a lot of different games in there.
0: Yeah, I wanted to try to make something that really felt like felt like it could have existed on the original NES by virtue of the fact that it feels like a lot of games in, that you've played in the past. So hopefully that that turned out pretty well.
1: <laughs> you said you've gotten some questions and reactions in person at various conventions and you have been very busy on the convention circuit. You went to one show in June, 3 in July and 2 this month all in, all in Texas. So how, yeah, yeah. how is it that you get into so many shows?
0: I mean, some of them were, uh, things that friends told me about or things that friends were organizing, uh, the indie game showcase that I did back in June. That was something that a friend of mine was setting up, uh, for some of the uh, other ones like, uh, the rooster teeth expo or ScrewAttack uh, screw convention or QuakeCon. Um, I just signed up for those as early in advance as I was able to and got some booth space and <laughs> brought all my stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a it has been a busy couple of months, but it's it's been a really good experience. And I think uh, being able to give players the chance to actually play the game and understand how it feels has been a big win because it, that's something that you can't really describe in text or with screenshots. Uh, and I think the experience of actually playing it probably sells it better than anything else that I could do to promote it. And it's also been really good for me just to w- sort of watch people play it and understand like... Where are the directions not clear? Where are people, you know, dying too frequently? Does the game need to be harder? Does it need to be less difficult? Sort of just observe all those things by watching people play.
1: All six conventions that I mentioned have been in Texas. Did you consider taking the game on the road, such as the recent PAX Prime?
0: I'd I'd love to do PAX Prime at some point. I've actually been going to PAX Prime as an attendee almost every year since it started. But, uh, so far, it just hasn't really made sense financially. It's expensive to get booth space there. It's would be expensive to bring all of our equipment up there. So I've been looking for opportunities close to where I live, which is North Dallas, Texas. But uh yeah, definitely at some point in the future, hopefully if Minor Key Games continues to grow, we can sort of branch out and start going to other places.
1: You said one of the best ways to get this game into players' hands is to go to conventions. As far as I know, you didn't make this game available via Early Access on Steam. Why is that?
0: I have uh, mixed feelings about Early Access. I feel like if you... At least, this is just sort of my own experience from what I've seen from what other games have done. If, If a game comes out on Early Access and they have a really, really strong prototype, very often that's because the game is near completion. But I don't think that players necessarily have that understanding that the game isn't going to grow too much more than it already is. And conversely, if you put a game on early access and the prototype maybe has some cool ideas, but it's buggy and crashes a lot and it's not very polished, I think that that can hurt players' impressions of the game, even if there is a very strong promise there and even if it is clear that the game is going to develop in a lot of different ways before it ships. So I feel like it's, it's worked for some developers in the past, and even though it wasn't built as early access, obviously Minecraft had that sort of experience of you know, selling the game when it was in an early farm, and that worked super well for Minecraft. But I feel like for a lot of games, it's, and for a lot of developers, it's probably not the right choice. So it, it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue for this game, and it's probably not something that I'm going to look into in the future, unless it just really, really makes sense for some game design that I have. But uh, I've sort of had similar experiences with Kickstarter, and that's why we haven't yet done any Kickstarter projects with Minor Key games. I feel like the the, the risks tend to outwe- outweigh the rewards in a lot of those cases.
1: Super Win the Game is very different from Minor Key's previous game, Eldritch, which was from a first-person perspective. So what would you say are the common qualities of these games that tie your portfolio together?
0: So, actually, the the name of the company, Minor Key, uh, we wanted to have have a name that evoked the qualities that we enjoy in games, uh, something that has just a bit of a uh, a dark edge to it. And <laughs> I say that having just made this game, this, uh, at least on the surface, seems like this super happy, fun platformer. But uh, I, I do think that... Uh, I guess we're trying to make something that e- evokes a certain feeling. So even though... Yeah, Eldritch and Superwin are very different games functionally. Uh, I think that the the experience of playing them should hopefully, sorry, evoke the uh, similar feelings in players. <laughs> I know that's sort of a vague, intangible answer, but <laughs> it's the best one I got.
1: <laughs> Minor Key is a company that you co found with your brother, and I have three older brothers of my own. Unfortunately, they don't play video games, but even if they did, I can't imagine that we would ever get along. Long enough to make a game together. So, what's it like to work with your brother?
0: Um, so, actually, we, even though we have the company together, we don't really work uh, closely together. Uh, you know, I live here in Plano, Texas. Uh, David lives out in uh, Nevada, California, and we are actually sort of working on these games separately. So, Eldritch was developed 99% by David, and Super Win the game was developed 99% by me. I guess our goal when we founded Minor Key Games was to be able to have the freedom to work the way that we would if we were just solo developers, but release those games under a shared identity so that we could get that sort of cross-promotion.
1: What did David contribute to screw Win the game? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, probably one of the biggest things was the name. Uh, back in January, we were at Steam Dove Days and I, I came up with this idea for a sequel. and I was like, I don't really want to call it You Have to Win the Game 2. Because at that point, I was already so sick of saying, you have to win the game. It's just such a mouthful. I was like, I need to trim it down. And, uh, yeah, David suggested, uh, super, you have to win the game first. And then we, we trimmed that down to a super win the game. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he's also, you know, given me a lot of feedback, played some of the early builds, given me design input. So yeah, those sorts of things.
1: Excellent. Well, I'm glad he thought of that because I agree, it is a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah, and
0: that was something where I I knew that I was going to be taking the game on the road and going to all these conventions and stuff. I'm like, if I have to be saying, you know, you have to win the game too, (laughs) to every single person I talk to, I'm like, no, that's not going to (laughs) happen.
1: Yeah, if you had asked me, I would have suggested you have to win the game again. But I still think Super Win the Game is the best title you could have come up with.
0: Definitely, I, I think for whatever whatever game I do next, it's gonna be like a one-word title.
1: <laughs> Ooh, any idea what that next game might be? I, I've
0: been uh, I've been throwing around a lot of ideas. At first, I was thinking I wanted to step away from the sort of retro-themed games and do something that was a complete one-eighty from that. Maybe you know, like a first-person shooter or something like said. Then I'm like, I, I built all this technology. I have this cool. CRT simulation. I have a level editor that works pretty well. So I've been, uh, I've been throwing around a few ideas for like if I wanted to do another game that's sort of in the uh, NES theme. And one idea I had was basically sort of answer the question of what would Super win the game look like if it were a roguelike, if it had permadeath, if it had combat, if it had some of these different things, but was functionally similar in, in, you know, in the feel of movement and the way that you traverse through the world. So I've been throwing around some ideas like that, and we'll we'll see what comes mm-hmm. of that. <laughs> I don't necessarily know if that will be the next thing I do, but that's sort of where my mind is right now.
1: Excellent. I'll keep an eye out. In the meantime, thanks so much for this behind-the-scenes look at Super Win the Game. Is there anything you want to add?
0: The game comes out October 1st. Uh, it's going to be on Steam, $12.99. Uh, you can also get the game and soundtrack together for fourteen ninety nine. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to everyone playing it and (laughs) hopefully everyone has a good time with it.
1: And remind us where we can find you and your company on Twitter or on the web.
0: Uh, Yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook uh, at Minor Key Games. Uh, You you can find me on Twitter at Pirate Hearts and then our websites are MinorKeyGames.com and the website for the game is uh, SuperWinTheGame.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Kyle. Good luck with the game's release. Cool. Yeah, thank
0: you. This has been IndieCider, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net.